morning, everyone. Uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter nine. I'm sorry, John chapter six. Looking at page nine here. Uh, so turn to John chapter six. Uh, we're going to be looking at the passage where, John, where Jesus feeds the five thousand, and uh, we're going to be what I what I hope to what I hope to accomplish here is that uh, is to get at kind of the story behind the story, what's going on within the whole Gospel of John, but also what is he, what is what is John, what is Jesus alluding to in his actions of feeding the five thousand? So very often we have seen that that the the things that Jesus accomplishes or the works that he does, these are not often the point in themselves. Very often the point of something that Jesus does is something that it alludes to within the scriptures. And, and it's, it's done in such a way that he says, look, this is, this is the reality that the sign itself was pointing to. It's something beyond the actual deed. So when he feeds 5,000 people, it's not just that he feeds 5,000 people, though that is a, a miracle in itself, but he's saying something by, by what he does. So um, I hope to accomplish that. Um, uh, let's uh, let's pray and then and then we'll uh, start. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, this time. We we do pray that you your Spirit would be among us, that you would be at work um, in and through your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would you be glorified today, that your that Jesus would be exalted, and and that uh, you would draw all people to yourselves to yourself. And Father, we just thank you for. Uh, this time we pray that uh, you'll be with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we finished up John chapter 5, where we saw that Jesus was to be exalted as judge. Indeed, as the Son of Man, he would be, he would be exalted. He was exalted in anticipation of the exaltation that would happen at his resurrection. His ministry was working itself out in one large court scene, complete with the witnesses, the evidence, the defendants, the jury, and the judge, who comprises which category might change depending upon one's response to the evidence. The evidence was being put before the eyes of the jury, in this case, the, Jew the Jewish people, and in particular, the Jewish leaders. And they were evaluating or called to evaluate Jesus's identity and work. Were they to accept the testimony and evidence, they would find that life awaits them, both in this age and in the age to come. Were they to hear Jesus's words and believe on the Father who sent him, they would be granted in the present time the life of the resurrection. But supposing that they see the evidence and hear the testimony that God was testifying in his son and then not believe the evidence, they would find themselves as defendants with the weight of the evidence testifying against them. John the Baptist, as a, as a human witness, had testified, and they had rejoiced in his life for a short time. But the ultimate testimony that God was giving through Jesus uh, himself was the testimony of the deeds he was doing. And they had rejected God's testimony, even though it was in congruence with the testimony of Scripture and was constantly pointing to the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. It seems to me that there is a dimension to what, uh, to what John is saying about Jesus's deeds that make them especially true and non-replicable. 
It is not simply that Jesus comes working miracles. Others had done that. Think of Elijah, Elisha, even Moses. They had done great works. But what made Jesus's work significant was the works themselves were signs signifying something beyond themselves. Because of the significance, the signification of the signs, they were unreplicable and most meaningful. They were not simply designed to say, hey, look, I am God, believe in me, but to signify a wide range of things and events related to God's promises in the scripture. It is this dimension of Jesus's deeds that make them testimony that God has sent Jesus. The deeds always pointed beyond themselves to various aspects of fulfilled scripture. In this gospel, in the gospel of John, these deeds, these signs were nothing less than the works which God was doing in constructing his new creation, a renewal of all creation through Jesus, his son, the word, the eternal word by which he made the world to begin with. The purification that comes with the new age, signaling, uh, signaled by the turning of the water for purification into wine in chapter two. The building of the new temple in the body of Jesus in chapters two and four signal not only that God was building a new temple in the body of Jesus, but also that he was bringing about the new exodus that the faithful within Israel had been longing for, wherein God would come to Zion and rescue his people. The coming of this new temple is like the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And as the tabernacle and the filling of it with the glory of God was the climax of God's bringing Israel out of Egypt, so too when God constructs his temple in the body of Jesus, this constitutes the climax of God's new exodus, the new exodus from sin and death. God has finally made his dwelling among men. Israel's temple would not endure, but this temple would, the body of Jesus. The former temple was a sign pointing to a new reality, wherein God would construct his temple through Jesus, through the word. And this temple that Jesus creates will encompass the whole world. God so loved the world, and this is how he's going to do it, by the body of Jesus. These are signs pointing to a new reality that Jesus himself is bringing about. We also should not forget about these constant, the constant allusions to and echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 in Jesus's language. When Jesus speaks of doing the work of his father and finishing it, he is pointing not to the works themselves, but to the new reality that he is bringing about. He says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete the work. This is nothing less than the completion of the inauguration of, of his new creation, echoing Genesis 2, 2. And God finished the work in the seventh day. He finished his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. See, Jesus is sent to finish the work of new creation. <laughs> Exodus, temple, new creation. These three things and more signify, uh, form the signification of Jesus's works, and they testify in a powerful way to his identity and mission. Testimony to the fulfillment of the promises of God made to Israel. And it is this fulfillment aspect that makes that make Jesus's works testimony. We think he's simply showing his power as God. And while that is true, 
he himself doesn't view them in exactly this way. He views his works as testimony, pointing to something beyond the signs. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This comes, of course, from the other Gospels, but the same is true there. The signs point to something beyond them. John, however, brings out this aspect of the signs more pointedly. Chapter 5 uh, ended with an escalation, escalation of the tension that existed between the Jews and Jesus, those Jews who were seeking to kill him because of his breaking of the Sabbath and calling God his own father. This escalation ended there in chapter 5 with the Jews becoming the defendants in the court of the Son of Man. Torah, that is, Moses, was another witness, and it had testified about him in the senses just explored above. And they haven't believed, just like the people didn't believe in Moses after Sinai. See Exodus 19, 9 and following. Chapter 6, though it looks quite different than chapter 5 in terms of the content, is actually a continuation of Jesus's works, but again looking beyond the works themselves to their meaning, their significance in light of the scriptural story and promises. This aspect of John, and really of all the Gospels, is the actual meaning of the books, not simply the deeper meaning, but the actual meaning that we become more and more able to discern the more we immerse ourselves in the scriptural story. Let's read it. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying in order to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive only a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat, the men sat down, numbering about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Just a brief note here that I, I won't be able to talk about, maybe next week. Um, it seems as though what's going on here, we're going to see later on that there's this, there's this theme of, of eating, but of eating of the bread. If you think, about, uh, you think about what's happening in this particular passage, he says, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. He's likely, it's likely the day before the Sabbath, and he's alluding to the way that um, when they were coming out of Egypt, they would take the manna. And the day before the Sabbath, they would gather up a double portion so they wouldn't have to gather on the, on the Sabbath day. So that's probably what's going on in, in that passage. It seems like just kind of a 
something that's thrown in there, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. But it actually is, is significant in light of what he's what he's what we're going to see in in his allusion to um, in allusion to the scriptures in chapter in Numbers chapter eleven. So, so verse thirteen. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which the, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, so verses 16, uh, 14 and 15, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. What can we make of this story other than the fact that Jesus has performed a great and profound miracle, the feeding of a large crowd? about 5,000 people, with five loaves of bread and two fish. It certainly is a profound miracle, but to read these texts for all their worth, we need to have our illusion detectors on. For as we have continually seen with, with John and with the other gospel writers, the meaning is not usually in plain sight. Start with the detail about the people seeing the signs and following him because of the signs. Verse two. John is saying something about the signs and the people's relationship to them. It is perhaps a legitimate reason to seek Jesus, but Jesus himself is not about to accept their fickleness as fealty to him as Lord. In verse 26, he says to them, you seek me not because you saw the signs, insinuating that they would want to know more if they truly saw them as signs. But because, he says, you ate of the loaves and were filled. The significance of the sign was not being comprehended. They just wanted a meal. Jesus went up on the mountain, verse 3. What about this detail? Perhaps there's nothing to it. But he has just mentioned Moses and Torah testifying to him in the previous chapter. And who was it who was continually going up on a mountain in the Torah? Moses, of course, and there he got for them the word of God, a food of sorts, which would sustain them on their journey in the wilderness. And what about the temporal setting here in this passage? It was the Passover, John says, and this is a strategic point for John. Three times in John, significant things happen at Passover. First, Jesus enacts the purification of the temple and announces he is going to build a new one in three days. Secondly, here in chapter 6, where first, he fed, <clears throat> where first he fed them bread and meat, and he will, late, he will later announce that his body is the true bread of heaven and the true flesh that those who want life must eat. And thirdly, when he goes to Jerusalem to die and be raised from the dead, this seems to be the most significant of acts that will occur on the Passover. For it is there that he accomplishes what the Passover intended to point to. God becoming king over all the world. Each of these is significant in its own right, but when we combine them, we get the impression that Passover signifies something beyond itself, a climax in history when reality will be turned inside out. In chapter six, the whole of the long chapter is dominated by this theme of Passover, not simply that it's a fine feast that all readers should keep, you know, because Jesus did it, this is a common way of reading scripture. Jesus, uh, did, did Jesus do it? Therefore, I should go do it. That is not the best way to read this scripture. 
No, the theme of Passover is about Jesus's identity and the mission that he is accomplishing once again. It points. The theme of Passover points. What is it about the theme of Passover that is of significance here? Passover, as we have seen numerous times, was the beginning of a great deliverance for God's people, Israel. It is the beginning of God's act of great deliverance and the purpose of talking about that exodus, the beginning of which is Passover, is not simply to marvel at God's power to bring about an exodus, but that God is bringing about a new exodus, a new Passover. He will do it again, and he is doing it again in Jesus as his new Moses, that prophet like Moses, as they rightly perceive, yet misunderstand. Think of Psalm 106, which celebrates God's deliverance of the people from Egypt, rehearsing God's actions and mercies in the face of the rebellion of the people from Egypt to the exile in Babylon. The final two verses tell us the point of this rehearsal of God's mighty deeds. Psalm 106, 47, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. In other words, you did it before, do it again. And this is what is happening in John. The time for this deliverance has now come. And Jesus, as the new Moses, is leading his people out of their bondage. And one of the main things that people, the people of Israel needed during that deliverance, during that time in the wilderness on their way to the inheritance, is what? What do you need if you're traveling through a desert land? Bread, right? You need food. You need bread. And it just so happens that this, this theme also <coughs> dominates the story here. This theme dominates the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. It is food that is constantly that constantly becomes a source of contention for Israel in the wilderness. The thing for which the people longingly desire. They lost sight of what God was actually doing with and through them, taking them to their inheritance. Their minds became fixated on the food that they didn't have, that they thought they were going to need that they greedily desired. We see this in Numbers 11, which seems to form the background of this chapter in John. Listen for the overlap. The rabble who were among them, this is 11 verse four, Numbers 11 verse four. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we ate for free in Egypt the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of the delium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Note here, fish and bread. Remember our story that we're reading. This is the bread from heaven. Later on in chapter six, he's going to pick up this motif again, once again, and he's going to, he's going to milk it for all it's worth. This is the bread of heaven, <clears throat> but the people had lost their appetite for it. 
and longingly desired more. Now they desired not only the bread from heaven, but flesh. Another word we will hear later on, here translated as meat. The people wanted meat, not that tired old manna that God had provided to get them into the land. This is what happens when food <coughs> becomes the focus and not doing the will of God. In times of certainty and fear, we often look to our own skills and means of provision in our panic when our focus ought to be on the source of life and doing the will of the one who sent us. We ought to have the disposition of Jesus who said, John 4, 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. We could all use a good dose of this. See Jesus's admonition in John 6, 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food, and he's talking of the manna and of our everything that we eat, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Within the story in Numbers 2, the people were longing for what they had in Egypt. They were slaves, but they ate well while they were in slavery. They had fish for free. They were, so to speak, working for the food that perishes, and they would ultimately perish while doing so. The cost of freedom, they were not willing to pay, and they would not reap the reward of their inheritance. And much the same point is being made here in John. The Jews were slaves not only to Rome, but of their own sins and devices, and God had sent his deliverer to deliver them out of slavery to give them, so to speak, a land flowing with milk and honey, an inheritance that they longingly desired to go back to Egypt rather than trust in and acknowledge the one who was feeding them bread from heaven. God sent leanness into their souls, the souls of Israel in the wilderness, and he sent leanness into the souls of the Jews who rejected the bread of life. And he'll send it into ours as well if we set our minds on things below disregarding the will and purpose of God and sending it. Not just the lost, but those of us who set our minds on things below and get our minds off the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. God didn't and hasn't redeemed us for the sake of ourselves or even ourselves and our own neat little families, but to make us fruitful in and through Jesus for the sake of others whom God is bringing into his family. This is a family which, as much as we'd like it to always correspond with our own families, it doesn't always correspond. This is the cost, though, of discipleship, the cost of seeking Jesus. Let the dead bury their own dead, he says. Come follow me. Who is my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, Jesus asks. The one who does the will of God. This is the cutting edge of God's will that we might follow in his footsteps with our whole lives, feasting upon Jesus and God's provision through him. If we don't, leanness of soul awaits us. It will come to us as, as we long for our own version of Egypt. We must eat of God's manna, Jesus, with satisfaction, looking to the future inheritance of the land, the resurrection. In the rest of the story of Numbers, the people have been weeping for flesh. The anger of the Lord is kindled and Moses becomes displeased. He prays that God will kill him, doubting God's ability to provide meat through him and doubting his own ability to carry them into the land. 
He desired, desired to die rather than to carry this burdensome people. Numbers 11, 10 through 15. The Lord then recommends that Moses appoint 70 elders. God will put his spirit upon them that they might minister to the people and take some of the burden of Moses. Moses is to gather the people and tell them, verse 18, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? And then the next portion of the story, as we compare the number story with the one in John, Philip plays the part of Moses in questioning how God is going to feed the multitude. Moses says in verses 21 through 23, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true to you or not. Now listen to John. Then Jesus went up on a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover was near. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. You see the overlap? As Moses doubted whether God could give the people meat because of their great numbers, so Philip doubted Jesus' ability to give the people food. In the numbers story, God does then give the people meat such that they couldn't eat the quail fast enough. And then he struck them with a plague such that the place where many of them died was called the graves of desire. There they lusted after the meat. In our passage in John, Andrew points Jesus to a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish so as to bring it to his attention. But he himself proves to have his doubts as well. But what are these, he says, for so many people? Again, the overlap in the stories. Andrew, too, is doubting the provisional ability of God to provide for such a great number of people. But Jesus, like God in Numbers 11, would give the people bread and meat, making the message complete. The Jews in John were being compared to Israel in the wilderness. They had been given leanness of soul, the inability to enjoy their daily bread. Their insatiable desire for what God had not given, their desire for the food rather than what it signified, becomes another witness against them as they approach a state of hardening that cannot be undone. This we will see in John chapter 12, 36 through 40, where John says, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them, like he does in this passage as well. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, John says, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This is where the story is going in John. God has sent his deliverer to rescue his people as God sent Moses. But the people's desire for food that perishes with all that that entails results in the hardening of the people such that they can no longer believe. They had locked themselves into a state out of which God could no longer bring them. They had cut themselves off. The same questions that had confronted Israel so long ago as God brought them out of Egypt confronted the Jews of Jesus's day. The question for Israel in the wilderness was not, are you going to let us die in the state of exile outside of the inheritance you promised us? It should not have been that. But if God made promises to deliver us and to give us the land, will he not provide those things needed to get us into the land? There's a huge difference between these two attitudes. One reflects the doubt of Israel and Moses as they journey from Mount Sinai in the wilderness and die in the wilderness, while the other reflects the faith of one like Abraham, who commanded to sacrifice his own son, the one through whom God's promise of a worldwide family was to be achieved, didn't hesitate to obey, believing in the one who could raise the dead. In the end, Israel and Moses die outside of their inheritance, whereas Abraham dies at a good old age in the inheritance promised to him and his descendants. God will not call you to something and not make provision for your journey. The journey and the provision, though, should never become the focus. Rather, the goal, the end, life in the land should be the focus. Sure, gather your manna, grind it and bake with it, but keep the land as your focus. Gather your groceries, make your meals, but keep the giver of eternal life, the life of the age to come, in, the fo in focus. Don't lose sight of this because you want to eat. Don't become like Esau and trade your inheritance for a mess of pottage. God is making provision for your life and the lives of those who will be impacted by, the, by you. This he is doing through Jesus as you feast on him, the bread of life. I don't want to imply that it will not be difficult. It certainly will. But if God can take Israel through the wilderness into the land, he can take you to an inheritance of life. At the end of this passage, verses 14 and 15, there's a puzzling note. And we'll probably pick up with this again next week. John 6, 6, 14 and 15. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who was coming into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. One might ask, isn't this what Jesus wanted them to do? To acknowledge him as king, as the prophet coming into the world? Yes, most certainly. <clears throat> but it was not the way that God had chosen to make him king. His hour had not yet come to be glorified, that is, to be made king. And it had to happen in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, it had to happen through Jesus' own death and resurrection, through his humiliation and exaltation. 
This was the way of the Son of Man, humiliation and exaltation, and the defeat of the powers and of sin that could be defeated no other way than through the bearing of that sin and death in his own body. Thus, his withdrawing to the mountain again was to say, this is not the time nor the manner for the Son of Man to be made king. He must die and rise again. As a summary, this passage, though important in its own right as a testimony to a miracle, serves once again to characterize the Jews as hardened Israel, the hardened Israel of the Exodus. His own to whom he had been sent would reject him and his way of becoming king. In performing his signs, there was always an underlying message, a story behind the story. And, this, and in this case, the shameful episode of, of Numbers 11 is replaying before our eyes. He is the bread of life, that is, the manna, the food which gives life. But the people are focused on the bread itself, having failed to understand his words and to come to him for eternal life. Having failed to hear his voice as the one who raises the dead and gives life, he will feed them as God fed Israel in the wilderness, but they will not be satisfied. They will get leanness of soul because they will not truly listen to his words. What does this say for us? One, we must not be like Israel in the wilderness or the people in this passage who were fed by the bread of life, but didn't eat the bread of life. We must not lose sight of life, eternal life, the life of the age to come, the life of the resurrection, which comes not through miracles, but by the words of Jesus, not by manna, which perishes, but by feasting upon the words of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and he can set a table in the wilderness as we keep our eye on the prize, life, by hearing the words of Jesus as the very source of life. In John, Check me out on this. In John, no one ever gains life by believing a miracle. And neither will we gain life by seeing the miracles. Life comes through hearing the word of Jesus and believing in the one who sent him. 